Welcome to another episode of Quilt Clubs, the podcast featuring your favorite folks from across the quiltiverse. I'm Amanda of Broadcloth Studio, and I'm joined by Anna of Wax and Wayne Studio. Hi, everyone. Wendy, the weekend quilter. Hey. And our special guest, Jen Swope of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, who's here to talk to us about the upcoming quilt exhibition called Fabric of a Nation American Quilt Stories, which opens on October 10th and runs through January 17th. Hi. Now, before we jump into all the quilty fun today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Jen? Sure, Amanda. My name's Jen Swope, as you said, and I am the David and Roberta Logie Associate Curator of Textiles at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. Um, it's a great privilege to work here um, in Boston at one of uh, the United States's and the world's most important cultural institutions. And uh, But I'm really glad to be here today with you and to talk about all things in the, in the, in the quiltiverse, at the, at the center of the quiltiverse. <laughs> I'm glad you picked up that, that terminology. <laughs> But now before we uh, actually kick things off of our discussion today, I guess my first question is, Jen, why haven't you picked up quilting yet? (laughs) Well, uh, I have a lot of ambition um, and uh, I I certainly have uh, a fair amount of experience patching my jeans from high school and college. And I still, for some absurd reason, feel a need to like patch pants when they wear out, even though they're quite replaceable. And uh, so I want to transfer that to actually trying to make quilts, maybe as I get a little closer to retirement. So I hope that you'll be able to teach me how to do that. You'll still be making quilts. I'll start, I'll start a retirement plan for you. There we go. I think you guys will find a lot of people as they, uh, as they approach retirement, uh, looking for interesting things to do with, and I am addicted to collecting fabric, which, so I'll I'll have that all, all ready to go. And, uh, So you've got a stash. Yeah, it's not a deliberate stash. It's more of a circumstantially acquired one. Um, but uh, but yes, yes. I'm so I, I have the materials and I have the enthusiasm. At this moment, I don't have the time. But uh, that's why working with historic quilts is so great. I'm just developing my my little Rolodex, my Filofax of of neat neat designs that I'll be able to put to use when I retire, and you can be my my quilt tutor. Perfect. <laughs> How did you decide to become a curator of textiles and fashion arts? Uh, well, Wendy, that's a great question. I didn't really ever make a decision I because uh, I have a hard time making decisions. But um, I went to the Winterture program in early American culture, or that's what it was called then. Now it's called American culture. So I really am... I learned a lot about uh, American decorative arts and material culture in their context, which has served me well, uh, particularly for this this project, uh, because quilts are all about context and story. Um, and uh, and then I was just fortunate to be able to work with textiles in different museums that I worked at, and I've been here for about the last two decades. Initially, I was brought on to focus on American textiles, but now I have a chance to look at uh, global textiles made for the last 4,000 years of human history, which is like an incredible privilege and um, kind of gives me uh, an opportunity to talk to people from really around the world um, about this incredible collection. 
What would you say is one of the most um, exciting things for you studying this kind of artwork and, and craft? Well, and I think that the, um, I think it's really hard not to love a quilt, right? Like that, <laughs> you know, you, like you see it and no matter what your experiences have been with quilts, um, they're made out of textiles, which are, you know, they just beg to be touched, which can be a challenge in a museum context, obviously. But um, but if you if you restrain and don't touch, that's always better. But you can recall often what it was like to have a quilt wrapped around you or to get to someone's house after a really long trip and just get into bed and be under this beautiful quilt that was both, um, you know, gave gave you warmth, but also was something beautiful to look at. Um, the uh, and obviously, you know, getting at the stories that these these things, these beautiful works of art tell, whether we know the maker or whether we need to really go take a deep dive into the objects themselves um, to try to understand how they were made and the circumstances and uh, and how the community that experienced them when they were new, you know, like all art was contemporary at one point, right? Um, how they experience them and why they value them and why do why do they why do they still exist after 300 years? As mentioned earlier, you're currently putting on the finishing touches on the upcoming quilts exhibition at the MFA. Can you give us an overview of the exhibition? Yes. Uh, so the exhibition is titled Fabric of a Nation, American Quilt Stories. It will open October 10th, 2021, and it will close January 16th, 2022. You can get tickets online through the MFA's website, uh, and it would be a good idea to get those in advance <laughs> because I think it's going to be a very popular show. I'll be buying all the tickets. Right. <laughs> and you I'm might ask hawk them on the corner. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, hey, yeah. <laughs> quilt, quilt show scalper. Yeah. Roaming, roaming the Boston metro area <laughs> <laughs> with a quilt coat with tickets all inside. That's right. You just go to Logan Airport and sell yeah, them exactly. to people flying in. The, um, and, and so why, why, why are you going to scalp tickets? Because it's going to be such a popular show because uh, <laughs> it is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to come and see some of the highlights of this incredible collection. So we'll have 50 quilts and woven bed covers and other works of art on view, mostly from our collection. Um, about, so about 45 will be from our collection. And they will span five centuries or 300 years. The earliest piece that we have in the show was made in India for export in the late 17th century, all the way to contemporary works of art made just this year. And so why and why is that engaging? Because it's just not your typical quilt show. So our, our goal is to upend the, um, the expectation of a quilt exhibition, get people to perhaps see quilts in a new light and both celebrate them for their artistry, but also try to understand them in the context of uh, the story of our nation and, and where we are today. So when was the last time the museum put a quilt exhibition? Uh, well, we were very lucky to be able to host Quilts in Color, the Pilgrim and Roy collection, and that was in 2014. So it wasn't really that long ago. So enough people remember that show. We also had a beautiful catalog, which is still available, Quilts in Color. 
And um, so we had both experience doing a quilt show. Um, and then much before that in the early 21st century, which doesn't seem that long ago, the MFA was among at least eight venues uh, for the Quilts of G's Bend, uh, which caused quite a sensation. So that is about a you know decade gap and then a six-year gap between quilt shows. So not at all its first. And then there were a number of uh, quilt and bed cover exhibitions uh, in the second half of the 20th century also because we have such a strong collection in, uh, in both quilts, bed covers, and, and we've always had a very strong uh, collection in embroidered bed hangings, probably one of the best in the country. The, the Pilgrim and Roy um, collection, that was a single owner collection, correct? So they kind of curated kind of the feel behind it. Is that how typically quilt exhibitions run? You mentioned that this exhibition is different. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. So as you said, Amanda, the Pilgrim Roy collection was uh, created by Gerald Roy and Paul Pilgrim, the late Paul Pilgrim. Gerald Roy is still thankfully alive and, uh, and is my quilt guru. Um, <laughs> he and Paul Pilgrim started collecting quilts in the 70s, and they were very influenced by uh, their own training as artists and uh, the for example, the color theories of Joseph Albers. So um, they were really looking at these uh, American, mostly 19th century, early 20th century quilts through the lens of color interaction and how they resonated with what they uh, valued in paintings uh, from the mid 20th century or really the third quarter of the 20th century. And um, so that's how they, they got interested and then they got started. And um, so I learned a lot from Jerry, Gerald Roy, about about how how to look at quilts. And also because he and Paul Pilgrim were in the beginning, uh, they were sort of there on the ground floor of the quilt revival of the 70s. Uh, they had great stories to tell about, uh, you know, getting to Brimfield and other other fairs, you know, with flashlights before the, before the sun came up and like bumping into other collectors who were, you know, had their own vans parked in the, in the parking lot and, um, were ready, you know, and, and, uh, going to Amish communities where you don't knock on an Amish person's door. You have to have like your in intermediary person. And, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, when you hear the stories of collectors, particularly like when they look back on when they were sort of young and figuring it out, you know, and it's also kind of hard for people to understand how different it was to collect things when there wasn't like a bibliography or, you know, there were no online sources. You couldn't go to a museum database and look things up. So a lot of that learning was done really in the field um, in a way that I think is like, honestly, sort of and I'm sure you feel this way as makers, like the best way to learn is to actually do something, you know, whether it's like touch something, you know, using all, sort of all your senses to learn is um, to me the most, sort of the most productive way to do that. So as you mentioned earlier, the, the focus of this exhibition is much more on stories. And as you just referenced, you know, when a lot of these quilts were collected, it was before the days of bibliographies and museum databases and things like that. So how has it been kind of resurfacing and researching these stories behind the quilts? Well, as you can imagine, it's been a lot of fun and, um, and you know, a lot of work, but also we've had one of our goals from the very beginning was trying to understand undertold or um, under, I always think of them as not necessarily undertold, but under listened to stories. Um, so what stories really haven't been recognized or validated in 
academic situations in museum, any kind of, by any sort of like institutional um, context. And um, quilts in particular, often because they were passed down from generation to generation, um, often the skill of quilting, the actual techniques um, are transferred in a very informal way, not, not really through schools. Um, and uh, of course, the um, even even in the '70s during the quilt revival and the whole craft revival, quilts were sort of never always really fully welcome. Um, there's still even a hierarchy per perpetuated in the studio craft movement. So, um, I think what I've enjoyed so much is talking to directly to artists who were working during that period in the 70s all the way to today, um, getting at where they both felt incredibly welcome and supported, and then also sort of the challenges that they faced and whether it was, you know, I had, I had a baby and a toddler and I realized like I couldn't have, um, you know, my solvents for printmaking or oil painting in the kitchen, but I could do this on the kitchen table. So I always like to think of it as like a great kitchen table art in the sense that it, it literally fits into people's lives. And, um, and I also am very proud of not only does the exhibition reach across race, class, uh, urban, rural circumstances, um, the uh, the ageism kind of inherent in our culture is really upended in this show. Like some of the greatest works of art, for example, the Harriet Powers quilt. Um, she made it, at, you know, it basically in late middle age after her kids had left and uh, she was no longer in charge of them. And uh, she made quilts as art. They, she made them to be hung on walls. They were celebrated in their time and now we can celebrate them again. So the story part of it is um, I think it is like, again, like the material of textiles, it's a really important and valuable entry point for many people. That's such an interesting fact about the ageism. Like I wouldn't think about that, but everyone like, often people will think of quilts and then thinks of grannies. Yeah. And not that that's necessarily <laughs> a bad idea, but it is just something that, you know, a lot of people embrace at different stages of their life, but it's still welcoming when you're older as well. Yes, yes, yes. And I think the um, one of the quilts in the show by Carla Hemlock, um, who is a Haudenosaunee, or she's a she's a Mohawk artist, uh, and she's based in Kahnawake, just south of Montreal. She talks about learning, she learned beadwork from one, one grandmother and quilting from another grandmother. And the grandmother from whom she learned quilting always had an apron on with pockets and she had like little scraps. So she was always ready to go, you know, like, <laughs> like, you know, the, 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 the gun in her holster was always loaded in a sense. Like she was ready to like make something at any moment. And, um, and so those kinds of memories about learning and appreciating, it's not just about instruction, right? It's also about context and environment and culture in a very deep, very profound way. So how does the museum decide on which quilt should be featured in the exhibition? It's very complicated. It's like, uh, you know, it is like, Rocket it's like, science. It's like, it's like inviting people to a party, you know, like you want to invite everyone to the party and then you realize like, oh my gosh, we live in an 800 square foot apartment. Like that's not going to work. Yeah. You have to have five parties. So I'm like, you're always like, 
you're always curating kind of multiple exhibits because as soon as you can't include something, you're like, all right, but that's going to be for the next exhibit because we're going to do <laughs> this kind of show. And um, so, uh, you know, like an Ivy League school, we've rejected more valedictorians than we've taken. Like we've <laughs> like there for every quilt, every one of those 50 quilts in the show, there are a dozen that were almost like we're basically as good, but just didn't fit into the narrative that we were, we, a show has got to get something across to people and an exhibition has to get something across to people very quickly and very directly. And, um, particularly an exhibition that is, uh, showing quilts and bed covers. I mean, why a lot of people really don't want to go to an art museum and see this material on a wall. They want to go to an art museum and see paintings because that's what they expect. And I love paintings and I love going to exhibitions of, of, uh, works of art on, uh, two-dimensional works of art. Um, so we need to get right in there and, as I said, upend expectations of, of quilts as an art form right away. And so, so that sort of impact of not only what's going to be in the exhibition, but what will be shown when over the course of experiencing the exhibition is also important. So it's a little like you know, it's, it has its own internal narrative. Mm-hmm. And so you're always trying to find the best example for that point of the story that you're trying to tell the arc of the story yeah so you mentioned it that you narrowed it down to 50 quotes so how long did that take you guys to make that decision because that would be so difficult if you're just flipping through I think all Wendy these has 50 quotes in her closet yeah yeah like if you were going to curate your own let's say you were going to have your own solo show right and you had to choose and someone said okay you've got a gallery space that that we can show 15 of your quilts right? Do you think you'd ever be done choosing? Like the, the show would open and you'd still be like, maybe I really should have put that one in instead. <laughs> <laughs> so, but generally it, it takes a long time to figure out. Um, and uh, because also the way, we're actually very lucky, the Anne and Graham Gunn Gallery in which the exhibition will be shown uh, we can change the walls around. So um, the size of the galleries can change a little bit and the, um, uh, so that, that can kind of determine what, what will fit in. And, and it's very important not to put too many works of art in a single space as you organize the spaces. Um, because uh, to, quote, uh, to quote someone else who's, who's in the field, you know, every object deserves the dignity of its own space. So we want to make sure that there's like a nice visual margin around each piece and each piece is carefully selected again to demonstrate like that these are examples of art that deserve to be in an art museum. Um, And uh, what we will have things um, like photographs from the period that contextualize the object instead of being on the wall next to that piece, like is might be a way that we'd show it in uh, like you might show that that way in a cultural or history museum. It'll just be on the label, um, on the label rail so that that way like there really is more uh, from the point of view of an art museum curator wearing that hat you know it's really about appreciating the work as a standalone object or experience when you're thinking about the um the user experience of someone coming through how do you guys plan like how they're going to go on the walls like do you guys use 3d programs are you sketching them out have you made like a little model of the gallery I remember that from my my um, my art days. They used to actually make like foam core 
galleries and put them up on the wall, which I thought was the cutest slash most fun job ever. (laughs) We actually did have that for um, Quilts and Color, the the space that is still called Quilters Quilters Corner, even though um, there are lots of other exhibitions. It's a space outside of the gift shop. And um, we put the model up uh, in in that space in a case. We're not doing that for Fabric of a Nation, American Quilt Stories, but um, we have because I have we have such an amazing design exhibition team and uh, an amazing exhibition department. I really think the Museum of Fine Arts exhibitions are just beautifully designed and uh, absolutely with the visitor in the center. The visitor experience is at the center of the goal, is the centering goal of uh, designing exhibitions. So now instead of doing foam core, you know, we have 3D modeling and I don't do this. Uh, (laughs) The designer's name is uh, Kyla Hudgison and she does an amazing, amazing job. And um, every time we meet, which is basically weekly, um, she'll, and be, thanks to the pandemic, we've actually done a lot of, most of the design of this show has been done remotely. And wow. uh, it works very well with um, with the design software. So um, Kyla can pop that on the screen with screen sharing and move little uh, postage-sized pieces of images of quilts around <laughs> on the screen. And we can say, oh, yeah, that works. Yeah, okay, that's on the sight line. And it's a lot of, like, figuring out, um, again, Sometimes it's just like, you know, this wall has to go there for structural reasons or this is on the sight line. We really want to emphasize this and we want to beckon people into the next space with X object. So it is a very, um, it's very different than doing, let's say, an article or a book, uh, which is a very different experience, even though, you know, we'll often use you know, the same, the same objects and, and, and visual material. And, and research, you know, but it's it's done in a very different way, which is like one of the things that actually makes my job very interesting is, um, you know, just because uh, Pam Parmel and Lauren Whitley and I wrote this book and with we had a terrific uh, editor, we have a great uh, publications department in the Museum of Fine Arts and beautifully illustrated. Um, thinking about how these quilts, and not all of them in the publication are going to be in the exhibition, but how they'll be shown and experienced um, in a gallery is very different than how they'll be experienced lined up uh, in essay form in the book. So for for this particular show, um, are the majority of the quilts featured uh, from the museum's collection, or do you source them from other museum's collections or private collections? Uh, it is a combination. 45 of the 50 works are from the Museum of Fine Arts collection. And uh, we have such a rich collection that dates back to the 17th century. It was uh, a great opportunity to show them to the public. The um, And uh, we have five, I call them strategic loans, that uh, for things that we just couldn't <laughs> represent, um, but we thought were really important to the story of American quilts. So we are borrowing uh, a quilt made in the Poston internment camp uh, in Arizona during World War II by Masako Hirihata's fourth grade classroom, and they were doing a unit on uh, pioneerism in America. So we actually have a black and white photograph that the National Japanese American Historical Society in San Francisco uh, is also provided 
uh, they own the quilt and they've generously lent it to us. Um, another really, so we don't have anything like that in our collection. And we thought that that story really needed to be told and represented. And it's quite, it's a quite, it's a very moving piece. Um, the, uh, and then we were just so fortunate to be able to borrow the Smithsonian's national, um, the Smithsonian's Harriet Powers Bible quilt um, made a few years before the MFA's Harriet Powers pictorial quilt. And they'll both be on display together. Cool. First time ever. They were never mm -hmm. on display together during Harriet Powers lifetime. So that will be uh, truly a historic moment to come and see these two American treasures together. Did you commission any quilts for this exhibition? No. Because I know that you have a couple, you mentioned that you um, also have uh, at least one quilt that has been made in the last year. How did that acquisition come about? Well, one of the quilts that we that we uh, acquired uh, during, especially during the pandemic, uh, during the shutdown, was made by Michael Thorpe, who is now based in New York, but grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. His mother's a quilter. And uh, so apparently they had to do sort of rock, paper, scissors to see like who got to use the long arm quilting machine. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the day after George Floyd's murder, he woke up um, in the morning and he made this small but very powerful quilt and he posted a poem uh, on his Instagram page. And so that is a quilt that is and it's very, it's not big at all. It's, um, probably about 20 inches high and 16 inches wide or 18 inches wide. And, um, it's untitled, but applicated on the face is, uh, are the words black man. And, um, it's quite moving. And, uh, it was his reaction to, to this tragedy. Um, so that was actually acquired, uh, very soon after he made that in May, 2020. And, um, we realized as as we moved through the pandemic as just regular people and also as museum people that uh, we really needed to make the show, um, I would say like a dress isn't really quite the word, but we needed to acknowledge, the exhibition had to acknowledge what people were going through and with the, with of course the understanding that they would be seeing the show not in that exact moment that they were experiencing um, what's going on. But um, I don't think there's really a week that goes by that something uh, isn't part of the news or just even part of just communal discussion about this period that we're in that doesn't seem to have something that relates to the quilt exhibition in it in a sense. Um, and it's also, I think like the point that we talked about earlier that, you know, these quilts are sort of like, they're, they kind of bear witness to history, but they also tell um, not necessarily the straight political or military or the straight history. They often have like these sort of tangential, very personal experiences with these broader waves um, of historic, of history. And, um, so there's um, so there's like the Poston quilt, which to look at is this, you know, very special, beautiful class project, right? There's nothing about World War II in it specifically. You have to like bring that context to to that quilt to really understand it. And we have a Civil War quilt in the show that's made from Civil War uniforms, 
but um, it features appliqued images from popular magazines at the time. So like of battles, but you wouldn't necessarily know that they were battles unless, you know, we, we explore it. Um, and uh, so, so getting at those stories is really what we're doing and we want to bring people into them. And, um, and like a lot of material culture, it doesn't necessarily hit those, um, those high points on the timeline, like square on the head. (laughs) (laughs) It's the, the individual versus the history textbook. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 It is not a textbook on a wall. I promise you. I think you have been (laughs) dazzled. And I, I always tell people it's like the least representative quilt show that you could possibly imagine because like they're all really extraordinary examples of their type. So one thing that's actually, it's a great illustration of that. It's like, in the publication, because we had could put more quilts in the publication, we have a quilt made by a woman for her son who fought in this was fighting in the Civil War and was thought to have sent it to him. Uh, you know, and it has a biblical verse quilted into it, and it's a it's a lovely quilt. But we really wanted to make sure that the visitor experience of quilts was with quilts that were not typical. In a sense, they have to be like really visually dynamic. They have to upend expectations. We've talked obviously a lot about stories and individual histories and like digging up that. If you could go back in time, what is, what would you ask quilters of the past? (laughs) Well, I love that question because like, I'm just overwhelmed by that question because there's so (laughs) much to ask them. Yeah. Um, Why? (laughs) Yeah. The, uh, well, I do think it's kind of, you know, I think when we, as I said, like the quilt show doesn't represent regular quilts at all. They're all exceptional examples of their type. And I think another thing that we tend to forget when we look at a quilter's quilt, like for example, the Harriet Powers quilt is that she made a lot of other quilts that were very utilitarian for regular purposes. And she did tons of other things in her life. So like all of you and all of you, you know, people go to the grocery store, they take care of their families, they go to the doctor, they, you know, they do all of these things. And, uh, the quilting is just a, it's a, it's a, it's a very important part of their lives, but is by no means their only visual expression. It's by no means their only creative expression. And, um, and, and these quilts grow out of that, um, that diversity of experience. So practically, I would want to go back and ask Harriet Powers if the pictorial quilt in the MFA's collection was actually in the Memphis World's Fair of 1897, but that's an incredibly nerdy question and might be considered a waste of the Wayback Machine. <laughs> You're getting kicked out of the... Uh, yeah, the yeah, they're like, you you wasted that. <laughs> but that's actually what I would really want to know because we don't know the answer to that question. There's like a little bit in the, uh, in the file about that. Um, so, but I would just, uh, I'd like to have an understanding of of sort of what else was going on in their lives and um, and how did how were these quilts celebrated? You know, we say that they were celebrated and we know that they were in county fairs and hung on walls and they were in church fairs, but, you know, like what was important to them about the recognition of their labor and their artistry? Like what, what was important to them is what I would want to know. It's a pretty good question. Yeah, yeah I besides so. the very specific nerdy one. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, it is time to move on to our rapid fire quilty questions. Are you ready, Jen? Yes, I'm ready. Okay, Anna, why don't you kick us off? All right. What is your favorite time of day to look at quilts and other textiles? The morning because the light is best. 
And where do you textile research? I usually do textile research here at the Museum of Fine Arts in my office, but I also do it in my dining room and all over. And when I'm dry, my husband's driving and uh, anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favorite tool for studying textiles? Or what's your go-to tool? My go-to tool are just my eyeballs because I always have those with me. (laughs) And, uh, you know, occasionally I'll use a loop. Um, Tape measure is useful, but, um, you know, just, 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 my my experience and uh, being open to what I'm looking at is important. And the loop is what we think of when we think of jewelers with the thing yes. on their eye? Yes, okay. magnifying glass, uh, essentially portable magnifying glass that folds up. You need an apron for the magnifying glass. Yeah. Yes. You're always ready. <laughs> always ready. Uh, do you wear shoes while you're researching? <laughs> I always wear shoes when I'm researching. In fact, I usually wear sneakers. I have them on today. Yeah. and do you have music netflix podcasts or the sounds of silence while working uh well in work in the office i'm obviously not not playing music um but when i'm home uh i as i've as i've said before i i count on my loved ones to dj my life for me and uh, i wanted to actually just recognize how the performing artists in our lives have really uh, suffered during this pandemic. So I've had a great time going back in YouTube and um, just looking at like friends who are musicians, like there are things that they posted on YouTube. Uh, A good friend of ours is in a Grateful Dead Steely, he's in a lot of bands, but uh, Steely Steely Dead was his band in Denver. So we went back and looked at these like old concert (laughs) footage and, um, and uh, a lot of there's been just actually I think like probably like quilters like musicians really just they just got to make music and like you know they really have um, have put out a lot of content over the over the course of this pandemic so that's been a lot of fun to go back and and revisit those. Do you have a current favorite or one that you keep? Hitting uh, well, I actually, as I said, like, I like to do things with other, like do this sort of thing. Like I, I can't, I have like no imagination. So, and I have no time. <laughs> so like if my daughter's home from college and she wants to watch like John and Hank Green, the vlog brothers, like I just love watching that because they talk about history and they talk really fast and they're really intense and they're br- brother and brother. And I like that. Um, and John Green's from Indiana, which I think is cool. Actually, they're great Indiana quilts in the show. So I would say that um, it's really all about context. And so if someone has just discovered a new musician or a new podcast, and of course, Quilt Buzz is always fun to listen to, too. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> Thanks for the plug-in. <laughs> Do you have a favorite snack while researching? Uh, I just usually have like a peanut butter and jelly for lunch and I don't snack because then I have to wash my hands because I can't touch textiles unless I have clean hands. So snacking is kind of out. Yeah. What's your favorite traditional quote book? Uh, I really do always love a log cabin. Um, and, uh, but any of the, the simple four patch, nine patch, I don't really have a favorite. Uh, what's your favorite color? I like all colors. I have no color bias. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite quilt color scheme? Um, not really. I always like, I have to say, I picked up Gerald Roy's preference for orange and quilts. Um, oh. He and Paul Pilgrim had no problem buying orange quilts because no one wanted to live with them. So that was like an important <laughs> part of their collection. So I think I have a special appreciation for uh, quilt patterns designed around orange. Interesting. Do you prefer solids or print fabrics? Oh, I love them all. I love, um, no, I do. I really, I just think about like, I love resists. I love resist techniques. I love 
prints, cotton prints. I love, you know, just learning, thinking about dyeing and like what a saturated color meant uh, in a different period of time when that was actually quite quite a status symbol. Um, so no, I'm I, I like all all kinds of techniques of putting pattern and color onto cloth. Machine or hand bound quilts. Uh, you know, I don't really have a preference at all. Like, <laughs> I don't know, you know, I don't really like, I know some people like are really into hand everything. And I know some people like are like can use a machine like nobody else in the world. Like that's it's an amazing tool in their hands. And, um, I do like looking and like kind of pulling apart, like the steps of making, like what was the process? What's the steps of process? If you were going to press the seams, would you press it to? Oh Yeah. Would you press it open or would you press it to the dark side? Apparently, this is like quite controversial. I told you about um, this, Jane. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you Believe did. Me. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Uh, well, I was told by others that it's better to put them like both lying together on the side, you know, yep. as opposed to open. But, um, you know, again, that would be something for my future retirement project when I learn yeah. how to quilt. So if I can get a rain check <laughs> on that question, that would be great. We'll come back to you. <laughs> Pick one. Half square triangles, flying geese, or curves? Oh, flying geese. Pick one. Whole cloth quilts, Victorian crazy quilts, or traditional sampler quilts? Whole cloth. And do you have a favorite quilt size? No. I, I like them all. Because <laughs> I, I tend to think of them as on the wall, too. So, mm. um, so the size isn't really that important. Uh, what are your top three favorite quilts? I can't choose. Okay. <laughs> we have over 300 quilts in the collection. I really just can't choose. <laughs> but the Harriet Powers quilt would be one that rises to the top, certainly. And what's your favorite quilt exhibition of all time? Uh, this one, Fabric of a Nation. <laughs> in the past. As far as past quilt shows, it would definitely be Quilts in Color, the Pilgrim Roy collection. What was the last quilt you saw? The last quilt I saw was Faith Ringgold's Dream to King and the Sisterhood, made in 1988 with the help of her mother, in which she transcribes the a speech by her daughter, Michelle Wallace, about feminism, the experience of African-American women, and the civil rights movement. And it's a beautiful piece, and it's going to be featured in the center gallery of Fabric of a Nation, American Quilt Stories. Was it appliqued? It is a pieced quilt made with a range of different textiles from uh, uh, tie-dyed to printed cottons. And uh, the speech of her daughter was handwritten by Faith Ringgold with a Sharpie. Beautiful lettering. And that's in the center. And then the center panel is uh, actually a piece of cloth that's a square that upon it is she painted Dr. Martin Luther King, his wife, um, Fannie Lou Hamer and Rosa Parks. So it's like, it talks about sort of the underrecognized contributions of women during the civil rights movement. What is the last studio visit you did? Uh, I had the pleasure of visiting Sylvia Hernandez and her studio in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. And uh, she actually, I went to her apartment, which is now her studio. And she's an amazing person and an amazing quilter one of her works of art, hashtag how many more about gun violence, particularly the events in, um, in Connecticut at the school shooting in Connecticut, Parkland many years ago. So it's a, it's a very moving piece. And she talked to me about 
how even though it was like a school shooting in Connecticut, which is far away from Brooklyn, she knows and has experienced herself so many people who have been affected by gun violence that um, it really brought the work uh, the work's importance home to me. And uh, it was it was very, very moving. Yeah, what's your favorite part of putting on an exhibition? Uh, I like going into the gallery and seeing people experience that sort of final product, seeing everything out on view, hearing their like kind of eavesdropping on their conversations, um, <laughs> just sort of like seeing them enjoy something that, you know, that that so many people have contributed to. So before we sign off, we've got just a couple more questions for you. Sure. Who are three quilters you think the world should be aware of? And a quick note as to why. Uh, I would say anybody should be aware of uh, the work of Faith Ringgold, obviously, and uh, Harriet Powers, even though we only have two known surviving examples of her work. Um, there are just uh, so many. Uh, Susan Hoffman, uh, her work is going to be featured in the exhibition, and uh, I think people should know about her work. And of course, Bisa Butler, uh, whose work yeah. is on the cover of the beautiful publication, Fabric of a Nation, American Quilt Stories, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so many more. It's very hard to narrow it down to three. Are people able to see the show virtually if they aren't able to come to the museum? We're working out how uh, we'll be able to bring the show to people in a virtual format. Um, so just for various, because of really the, uh, for various reasons, we're not, I can't, it's hard to know at this moment how that will happen. And that's why the publication is so important because it is a way of bringing people there. But certainly I would encourage people to continue to check out the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's website. Uh, there will There's already a page up on the exhibition and uh, that will be populated with more content as the exhibition goes on. And before we sign off, do you have any fun projects in the horizon that you are able to share? Maybe with one us? specific project? Yes, I would like to get the exhibition up. <laughs> that would be that would be a great thing. And uh, I don't have any uh, any projects in mind right after then. Um, but hopefully the exhibition will travel, and um, and I'll just you know be able to give more talks on on the MFA's incredible quilt collection and. Um, and I'll keep in touch and let you know when we when we get that next next big show up and running. Sounds good. So we need to wrap today up and we hope that you enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to contact any of us, we can most easily be found on our Instagram accounts. I'm at Broadcloth Studio. Wendy. I am the dot weekend quilter. Anna. I am at Wax and Wayne Studio. And Jen. Yes, go to the MFA website. <laughs> Or you can go to our podcast account at quilt.buzz or our website quiltbuzzpodcast.com for our previous episodes and updates on upcoming guests. If you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you subscribe to the podcast and tell your quilty friends about us too. And if you have a moment to share what you love by writing a review on your podcast provider of choice, it'd make our day. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. 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 Bye.